Theories and we're ready to rock this weekend with Elise Grinsell and her awesome book Under My Skin Trauma Drama and Rock and Roll. You can find this book at undermyskinbook.com. This is an awesome book. She talks about her turbulent childhood as well as going from girl to woman and in that time finding her love of music, writing, eclectic people, different cultures, places, food, you name it. This is just such a fun book. Again, go to Amazon and undermyskinbook.com. Elise and I are ready to rock and roll. Let's get the party started right now. We're talking about your awesome book, Under My Skin. I love the title, love the book, and uh, your life is rather interesting in that not only are you from the East Coast, you have not only the rock and roll background, but I think your life before that prepared you for some of the things that you went through on the road. Talk about your book, your life. Tell us where you're from. Okay, sure. Uh, I'm from the Bronx uh, in New York City originally. During the age of when rap was just coming of age, we moved to another borough of Queens. I called it the better borough. 
I grew up <laughs> in the <laughs> I grew up in the sixties. So imagine the backdrop backdrop of you have Motown, you have hippies, you have free love and the whole movement, you have the civil rights movement. My mom was pretty progressive, but I came from a dysfunctional family. So while progressive um, let's say artistically and also humanitarianism wise, my life was hell growing up. Both parents were narcissists. My father, who was a sex addict, he had a great sense of humor. He was a nice dad when I was a kid, but he cheated on my mom for when he was, well, I guess when they first got married. I didn't know that, of course until I was about nine years old, and then every other night, they were out alone. So I had my mother's mother babysitting me on one night. The next night, it was my father's mother. What is a nine-year-old kid supposed to do? I didn't know what was going on, but I felt something really bad was going on. any case, then they divorced. I was sort of left on my own at about 13, 14. My mom was um, an alcoholic, and she'd get very abusive physically, you know, hitting me around emotionally, verbally. So I told her in no uncertain terms at 14, I'm in charge of my life. You have no jurisdiction over me. Goodbye. And I went off to do what I wanted to do, even though I was still in her home. And um, because she encouraged me to be artistic, but discouraged me from being myself and growing emotionally, you know, having any sort of support system emotionally, I poured everything into writing. And I love music. I played music. So I decided, I guess I was about 15 years old, I decided I'm going to be a music journalist. <laughs> and at 16, I was published. And then at 19, I was invited to go on tour as one of several journalists on a press junket with Kiss. And I went to Japan with them. And then I stayed for five years. Awesome. Awesome. Now, in your discovery after the age of 14, having gone through the abuse and the roller coaster of different things that you write about. At the age of 14, I'm sure at that time, um, there are several things going through your mind. Who am I? Why, why do I have to go through this uh, situation? And with your music and your journalism, uh, talk a little bit before that time, before you, you came to that realization, what was uh, at least like at, say, 12, 13, you're kind of coming into uh, being your a stronger own person. Well, I've always been what the, my mother would say, too sensitive, which I've come to realize is actually a gift and not a curse. Uh, I was extremely sensitive. I took care of my younger brother. In the sense I protected him, I would fight for what I thought was right. And yes, being sensitive was deeply in touch with my environment and yet contradicted. How do I fit in as a very strong and almost an outcast? 
strong personality, a different way of thinking, not wanting to fit in with the crowd. And yet, of course, at that age, you do want to be accepted by peers. So that was a big conflict. Yet, not enough that I would even change, <laughs> not enough for me to acquiesce. <laughs> so I guess there was a stubborn streak, which I then converted into a fierce determination to do what I want and to get what I want. Not always the best approach, mind you. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and in the uh, summer of love, the drug scene, and everything. I mean, I just can't imagine being around all of that and trying to find yourself as to, you know, what is you, what is not you, what is going with the crowd, what is being authentically you. So that's why I asked that question. You went and saw a lot of that and people trying to find themselves. Tell us what it was like during those psychedelic times of the 60s coming into the 70s because uh, it's a little different from my reading of, you know, the, the late 60s and then musically and and every other thing into the early 70s. You're coming into a different vibe. Well, okay, I will say this. I, I mean, it, I was I was still a preteen in the 60s, so mm -hmm. as psychedelic as it was, uh, it was psychedelic to me as a preteen in the sense that I wore clothes like Twiggy. I wore plastic uh, knee-high white boots and mini skirts. And um, I had a short pixie haircut, which was very mod, as they said, uh, back in the day. I listened to all kinds of music because my father was a representative for Panasonic on the East Coast, so he'd get swag like albums and tickets to concerts, which he snuck me into. So I had a pension for singing and I played music. We went to Woodstock, um, by the way. And awesome. Yeah, I mean, I was 12 years old, I think. So all of that was just thrilling, exciting to me. Oh, and my mother took me to Washington, D.C. There was a women's march to burn our bras. She was a feminist. And I have to say that, although later in life my father proved not to be, growing up he was a feminist in the sense that he did the washing, he did the cleaning, my mother did cooking. They split their chores. He never complained. He volunteered. He never stopped me from doing anything or being who I wanted to be. I played baseball. Uh, he didn't care. He he was never into a girl has to do this, um, or a boy, for that matter, has to do that. Nor was my mom whatsoever. So she took me to Washington, D.C. She burned her bra, and I burned my training bra. Awesome. <laughs> Wow. Now that that's really mod in terms of, you know, what the norms were back in that particular time. But one thing I, I read in the book that I thought was so interesting, you've got to do something that is so vital now. And um, so you're you were more likely grown. You grew up being progressive in your uh, thought processes of uh, wanting to travel 
and now we have a global society. Talk about that because you were introduced to that as a kid. Okay, so that's that's a really nice key point. Thanks for mentioning it, Sabrina Marie. I was sixteen when my my parents were already divorced and my stepmom, the one nice thing she did for me was offer me to go on a teen tour, which was popular back in those days, to Europe. It was a choice. Do you want to have a three sixteen party or Europe? I said, What? Are you kidding me? I didn't even go to my high school graduation. I didn't give a flying hoot about that kind of thing. So I went to <laughs> Europe alone with 10 other kids aged between 16 and 20. We flew alone to Amsterdam. We met at JFK. We met a tour guide that none of us even knew. And we traveled on the famed Volkswagen bus to nine different countries, camping out across Europe for seven weeks. Now, don't forget, no cell phones, no Internet. The only way you're going to reach your parents in case of emergency is through telex or telegram and through the uh, American Express office. Awesome. <laughs> My God. I, I can't imagine not being close to a cell phone. I couldn't even imagine that. Um, not being able to at least reach somebody by email or text. Wow. Well, and you survived. Well, right. <laughs> but I was just going to say, Sabrina Marie, we all survived. Guess what? We all survived. <laughs> awesome. awesome. You know, you had the traveling through Europe, and, but even before that, what well, I think may have in your mind prepared, you said you didn't like moving in, around even when your parents wanted you to go places, but it doesn't that, and I know that being a military brat, it teaches you how to deal with different types of people. Well, I didn't like, I love travel. I didn't like moving to where they decided to move me to because it was away from the action. I'm a city kid through and through. They took me to nowhere land, suburbia. On Long Island. I hated it. Mm. But you were getting to see a different side of life with each and every move and different types of people. Of course. And, um, yes. In today's society, because it's so global now, um, we don't have what you grew up with, neighborhoods, different neighborhoods, no. where people really knew each other. Those are sort of going by the wayside, which is sort of sad, but, Very. Uh, yeah, you don't know your neighbor uh, for more than a year or two if you know them, and then you really don't know them because you just know a first name, <laughs> so right. Right. It, it, it's, it's really kind of, but that travel through Europe opened your eyes to different cultures, foods, people, different ways of being. How yeah. did it transform Elise, when she got back to the States after that seven weeks of going through all those different countries and um, learning from people who couldn't even even speak uh, your language sometimes <laughs> or have your customs. True. <laughs> True. Well, I came back a woman, number one, um, because I experienced and experimented um, sexually uh, all over the continent. 
And wow, not just that. Well, there was a book at the time called Fear of Flying by Erica Young, which I had read when I was 13. I said, you know, I am a feminist and I'm progressive and I'll make the first moves. I don't have to wait for a guy to do that. <clears throat> I like so that. I lived, I lived that life and I came back thinking, not, not New York City. However, America was so parochial, so not the place I wanted to be because I couldn't relate to people in the way that I could in the various countries in Europe. For example, I had several male friends in Europe. I could just relate to them intellectually or emotionally. And it had nothing to do with sexuality. Nothing. Whereas in the States, everything was about that. It was stratified. It's sad. It's sad. Very sad. You can't just sit down. And and that happens now. That happens now. You can't just sit down for an intellectual conversation without either the person or other people around you thinking, hmm, what's going on there? (laughs) Well, I trained my son not to be that way, and he's not that way. He Most of his friends are women, and my son is 20 years old. So um, at least that. <laughs> um, amen for that. that. Yes, amen, a woman. He has total respect for women, and he's not he's not blindsided by gender. Um, and not right. just gender, but choice of sexuality. You know, there's mm-hmm. much more fluidity, for example, in Native American cultures, traditionally, and in many other cultures. <clears throat> and that's what I found in Europe as well as a teenager, the fluidity, which I experimented in without blinking an eye. I came back also much more cognizant of the fact that most American food was just plain crap. It was processed. It wasn't even real. American craft cheese slices, which, by the way, we didn't even eat because both of my parents' parents were first-generation immigrants. So I grew up with real food. Now, my mom, who was a typical mother in the sense of wanting convenience in the 1960s, yes, she did pop in a TV dinner now and again. She did do all that fast food, I don't mean fast food restaurants, but the the fast frozen kind of dishes, except that we had our grandparents who were cooking for me, which was a large part of my diet, fresh food. My mother's, my sorry, my father's mother was the original health nut. She never used white products at all. She was from Belarusia. So it was brown bread. It was, you know, no flour, no white rice, none of that. And that's good for you, too, to know what actual real food is. Oh, real food. Yes, we ate real food. Um, So there was that, that, that understanding of the palate, you know, a more sophisticated palate. Of course, the fashion was different. I came back with my jeans rolled up twice. I was wearing yellow clogs, and I had a dress 
over what would now be leggings. And people in my high school looked at me as if, I don't know. They looked at me, they, they were making fun of me saying, what did you put your finger in a dike? <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they, they, and it's they, interesting. They didn't they get were it. Behind, <laughs> they, behind, they, they were behind. They were behind. You were actually looking to see what was coming next. Because at that time, I believe, the music industry uh, there was a bit more fashion forward, and we would be catching up with that a little bit later. Yeah, true. Well, there were various fashions. There was punk, which was in in, in the UK. And well, no, this is earlier. I'm speaking in '73. Punk right started about '75, '76. Anyway, I also with this understanding that Europeans were far more educated than Americans in politics, politically, in social studies. And at the time, there was much more um, anti-Americanism because there was still the aftermath of the Vietnam War. Wow. That's true. And uh, many many of our Gen Gen, uh, and Alphas are listening to this. The war actually, you could be pro-war and against war. And in the beginning of the 70s, if I remember my history, there were a lot of people, a lot of students that were against the war and wanted to bring the guys home. Well, everyone in Europe was anti-Vietnam and anti-America. Even in Paris, I remember this giving me snooty looks in a cafe because they heard my English. And they were like, devil American. And I understood I'm very good with picking up language uh, because for me it's music. It's just a sound. And you pick up intonation. So there was that. There was also the, in certain places, not everywhere, um, being Jewish and it being... Well, not exactly after the war, okay, it was still 30 years after the war, yet fresh in the minds of the elder generations of Europe. I had never worn a Jewish star because we're completely, my family was was not religious. My grandparents were, but we weren't. It's sort of like going into going into a place and wanting to be seen for who you are rather than covering it up. Right. So being the minority, I wanted to make a point of it. I was already a minority being American. I wanted to make a point that I'll wear this Jewish star. Let's see what the reaction is. And, and boy, did you get a reaction. <laughs> yeah, boy, oh, did you yeah, get it. <laughs> it was not so great in certain places. You know, I had comments, wow. like, to the effect of, like, you should have been dead, or you should have been gone, or things like that. Wow, and they were still thinking that in the early... Se- oh. Well, they're Whoa. still thinking it now. And, and they're still um, thinking it in America, and they're still thinking it in the South. That's right. It did not change amongst a certain group or percentage of the population. Wow. 
Wow. The um, music side of you, and it's interesting, music was changing from, you know, you said your your childhood into the 70s, and you became a rock and roll uh, writer for the magazines. And I wanted to talk about, without giving up way too much of the book, uh, kind of telling our audience about what they, you know, what they may see and under my skin, because you talk about the music industry uh, and its isms against women uh, as a writer. And I thought that was um, a very on point because that still goes on now, not as much, but it still goes on. But from being that 16 year old, going into writing, going on tour, uh, and, and learning the music business, uh, you learned some things that, uh, I'm sure you were shocked about, angry about, but, uh, talk about the music industry at that time you're going in because yeah, Kiss was a part of that with Neil Bogart, but, uh, what was the reaction when you, you started into the music, uh, writing? Okay. I don't want to give away the key, um, Spoiler alert. Uh, that's right. That's right. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, re- uh, let me just brush over this. Harvey Weinstein of the music, uh, sorry, of the uh, film industry and Jeffrey Epstein and all these other POS. All the Epstein's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, um, there are plenty of that in the music industry amongst music executives from the highest to the lowest, and amongst the bands themselves and the band members. Don't forget, rock rock and roll is it's macho. The origins, just, just look at how half those guitar players and lead guitarists hold their instruments. <laughs> so you didn't have or hardly any girl bands. There was Gracie Slick, of course. There was Laura Nero, there were folk singers. Rock music, pop music, Christy Hines and the Pretenders didn't even come around until 1977, which was amazing. Okay. What about the Joan Jett group they had before the Cherry Bomb and all that? Big, that, was, um, that was 80s. I thought that was that was in the seventies. Uh, the group that she was with, the group that she was with um, before uh, she became a solo artist. I think that was the late seventies. Okay, I don't know. That, that I would, yeah, I don't know. Um, however, for me, being that strong, independent, almost the runaway, stubborn. Don't, the Runaways, that's what the group was. They were a late 70s Oh, group. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, right, and there was the B-52s as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, being that strong-headed, hard-headed girl, woman that I was becoming, I'd get offers, quid pro quo. Whoa. <laughs> and I just gave them the finger. I gave them the finger, and I walked out. I slammed the door. I don't blame you. Don't never, blame you. Ever kowtowed. Never. And I didn't care. I just, okay, if I'm not going to get an interview, 
okay, if I'm not going to be invited to that party, okay, if I'm not going to be on the mailing list, screw them. Wow. In the early 70s, there was an easy listening period that didn't last too long. Then it's interesting. We get more into the party scene, party music of Kiss and um, I call it an aberration of uh, R&B, which was disco. <laughs> you know, we had the different Latin, Latin, Latin beats and whatnot. And sometimes you could only sing, my father said, three or four words. That was the song. And then they'd have a whole musical interlude and it'd be like, oh, gosh. He said, when is this going to end? But um, <laughs> in terms of uh, like, like Fly, Robin, Fly, he couldn't stand it, you know. Uh, although I, th- I thought the music was beautiful. I thought the music, yeah. went, you know, he, well, he was well, used what to What about singers. Donna Summer? What about Donna Summer? Um. It's interesting. I was my, I guess my my parents' generation. That uh, Donna Summer was a uh, uh, awesome, you know, in terms of the marketing and and her voice and what she was able to do. Uh, I thought that she, you know, definitely a superstar. And too bad she's not around today. But you're right. I love to love you, baby. Oh my gosh, that was or, or <laughs> that's, that's the whole song. Or Grace Jones. Yeah, slave to the rhythm. Uh, Grace Jones definitely admitted a lot of that was uh, marketing, a lot of the marketing. And, um, you know, but but it was brilliant for its time because it was of shock value and it got people's attention just like Sid Vicious or some of the other people that I've read about uh, that uh, came out, uh, Flock of Seagulls. (laughs) They they may have been one-hit wonders, but you, you kind of... Remember that image, just like, what is that? (laughs) Yeah. uh, But the music industry as a writer, you said that um, it lasted you probably seven years. And were you just ready at that time to, you know, move on to other things? What was it for you? Afterwards, you mean? Like, why did I stop being a journalist? Yeah. Yeah. What what caused you? Yeah, it wasn't, Sabrina Marie, it wasn't a clear-cut decision. I morph. I'm very agile. So while I lived in Japan, and this is not in my book, because I'm writing a trilogy. So this is all in book two, what happened after the fact, what happens in Japan. So I'm just briefly going to say that I moved into a into publishing as a talent and booking agent. And I introduced punk rock to the Japanese market. Exciting stuff in terms of hearing it from um, not only your background of a girl and becoming a woman in Europe and coming back and then also going back. What draws you and would draw you back to going through Europe now? Well, I will say this. I lived for Europe for 20 years. I lived in Japan for five. And so for 20, more like 26, 27 years of my life, I've been living overseas. I have been back to the States since 2008. And what would draw me there is adventure culture, or if I could help 
people in certain ways. For example, in the 90s, I had a nonprofit in South Africa, which was an AIDS prevention program for teenagers. No one was interested. This was right after Mandela was elected in 1994. Right. And I, I had done research about what would happen to the African and South African population in particular because of AIDS and the spread of AIDS, which in Africa is more heterosexual than it is homosexual. And I was... I was disturbed greatly by it. And every decade, it seems like I have a cause. So my cause was AIDS in Africa in the 90s. And uh, I spent a lot of time in South Africa. So what would draw me anywhere in the world is a good cause, adventure, maybe love. <laughs> awesome. Oh. Wonderful. The book? we are talking about is under my skin drama trauma and rock and roll you can find it on amazon now is it in other places no just on amazon in hardcover in paperback and on kindle and your website yes if anyone wants to sign up for my newsletter which i would love it's www.elisecrenzel.com and you spell my name E-L-I-S-E K-R-E-N-T-Z-E-L That's www.elisecrenzel.com Awesome. I hope that you come back. This has been fun. I have so many questions, but I don't want to spoil do this, too many spoilers on the book. <laughs> so I will do. I won't do that. But I will ask this question that that wouldn't give a it'd be a spoiler. Um, what was your opinion of uh, Neil Bogart, impresario Neil Bogart, president of Casablanca? I guess he founded that that label too. Yes, he did. Well, I didn't know him very, very well. However, I do remember the beautiful building they were in, in New York. And I had seen him brushing by him at various parties. So I don't really know him that well. Wow. Because um, we we mentioned Kiss and Donna Summer um, under that banner of Casablanca. They did movies, so I thought I'd ask that question. Oh, sure, of course. You know, and he was ahead of his time, and and, uh, I think Kiss was the first band actually signed to that that label. Yes, Yes, they were. They were. I even have the press release from way back when. Awesome. Thanks so much for being a guest. Come back any time because... Yeah, there's so much in this book that, um, like I said, we don't want to spoil anything, but we want people to go over to Amazon and order Under My Skin, Drama, Trauma, and Rock and Roll. But there's just so much more, and I know that you're going to write you said, a trilogy, so I'm looking forward to that. Yay. Thank you yes, so indeed. much. Thank you. You've been listening to Building Abundant Success with Sabrina Marie, copyright May 13th. 2023.